Hi, and welcome to the Irana Hills Church of Christ podcast. We hope this message from Pastor Clinton Montgomery brings you closer to knowing God, finding freedom in Him, and understanding what He has in store for you and your community. To learn more about Irana Hills Church of Christ, head to aranahills.church. We hope you enjoy this message. Starting a new series this morning called Anchored, and it's based on an understanding and the question that I asked myself in a very interesting year. It's October, 2020 is almost done, and everything is going to change when we skip over from December to January, right? <laughs> the question is, how do we stand firm and love well in an ever-shifting culture? And it's based on a verse that I've been grappling with over the last few months, actually, in Hebrews 6, verse 18 to 19. It says, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. It says, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Isn't that beautiful? That this hope that lies before us is an anchor for our soul. So many people are struggling because they feel in their mental, their soul, their personality, all those capacities, they don't have something that anchors them. The author of Hebrews comes and says that there is an anchor and it's based on the hope that lies before us. And this hope actually leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Now, there's one place that I want to be found more often than not. That would be to be found in God's inner sanctuary. To actually find myself belonging and believing that I belong in that place. I reckon so many people struggle with the idea of God's presence. And because they struggle with the idea of God's presence, they default to God's principles. And they think that this life is all about living the right principles But if we don't understand the necessity of actually engaging this hope, leading us not just to good living, but to good experience of the presence and the person of Christ, we won't have any transformational capacity in the world that we're living in. One of the little pictures that uh, one of our friends just helped us understand, and it sort of um, gives us a good understanding of where so many people find themselves in is in this whole story of humanity, we all know that there was a fall and people uh, were under the bondage of sin. Terry so beautifully explained that this morning. And because of Christ, John 3.60, in the revelation of the Son of God, we discover that we have been saved. There's something called personal salvation. Do we believe that still? (laughs) That Jesus saves individuals. But there's something that we forget, that Jesus didn't just come to save people. He came to restore all things back to God. And it's sort of the understanding that when it comes to creation being restored, it's not just about the revelation of the Son of God. It's about the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. Romans 8, 19 says, the whole creation is waiting in tiptoe anticipation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. So there's something in this understanding that I think we need to grapple with, especially when the author of Hebrews comes and says that hope, the hope that lies before us is an anchor for our souls. 
Now, what we do is because we are so convinced about personal salvation, we think that the only hope that lies before us is a bus ticket to heaven. That I get saved, I go through a really tough experience on earth, and if I die, praise God, all the good things start happening. And that's why we struggle to get so many people convinced that what we have is an actual hope. But if we believe that it's not just about the fact that because of Christ, our eternal destination is secured, but there's a different dimension, that because of Christ, He's calling us into His kingdom work to bring restoration to all things, we realize that today matters. That what happens from a Monday to a, Thursday, to a Saturday is as important as what happens on a Sunday. And it sort of brings us to the understanding that, that some of us sitting here are so convinced about the vertical relationship, what happens between me and God. And that's the only important thing for you at this moment. As long as I'm just okay with God and as long as I just understand God's personal will for my life, I'm okay. Not considering that it's not just about you, it's about the horizontal connections. What's happening in our world at this present time? That we can't use the excuse of God saving me as a reason for not engaging the world that we're living in. So the question is, who of us sitting here could be stuck in just an, a horizontal revelation of what salvation brings to us? And the other side is, who of us are stuck in the understanding uh, sorry, vertical, who of us are stuck in just a horizontal understanding of what salvation brings? We need both. We need an understanding that what happens vertically has to impact what happens horizontally. Otherwise, we fall into either just excluding ourselves in our own little culture or just doing good with no actual transformational power at all. See, I believe that a wrong definition of hope the author of Hebrews speaks of, actually leads to instability and extremism. Now, we think that all those on the extremes are people that are actually doing something, but, but they're not. It's a great culture of blaming because defaulting to either extremes of either standing firm or loving well um, because it's easier actually leads us to a place where both parties are paralyzed. Where if we go to the extremes where our standing firm is all about truth, and all of us standing firm on the principles of God, we actually isolate ourselves from the, word, from the world. And if we only go to grace, where it's just about loving well, and just about embracing and including ev everyone, it also paralyzes us. So the key question that we need to grapple with is, how do we stand firm and love well? How do we balance truth and grace in the world that we're living in? How do we get to a place where do we don't fall trapped to the paralysis that happens from either side of the coin? And I think the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery was such a beautiful picture, and I don't have time to go into that. But there were a whole group of men accusing this woman who was caught in adultery. We all know the question, where's the guy? Because you can't commit adultery on your own. Don't try it. It's not worth it. It's just... <laughs> You actually need somebody to do it with. But there's a story because it was culturally acceptable that a woman was isolated and this bunch of religious men were standing there accusing her and Jesus walks into the conversation and he looks at them and he says, the one who has never sinned can cast the first stone, can throw the first stone. And one by one they left. 
Why? Because the truth, I mean, is it good for us to live in adultery? No. But Jesus shows us a principle that condemnation um, is toxic. It destroys. And he actually challenges the group that wants to condemn with challenging their own condemning thoughts internally. And one by one they left. But then he engages the woman. And he said to her, where's your accusers? And she said, they all left. He said, go away and sin no more. So that whole understanding that Jesus deals with the condemnation, but he also deals with the lifestyle. That there isn't the option of only defaulting to truth, the religious leaders, or defaulting to grace. Because if she continued, that wouldn't have been a transformational experience. And the question is, how do we find that in our time, especially in the world we live in? And when I thought about this, I had a few questions just myself that I started writing down. How do we respond when the world around us seems like it's constantly shifting? Where the things that we want to hold security in is constantly changing. This week, they brought out a whole new iPhone 12 that doesn't have a charger. I mean, that's the biggest news that hit the markets. Can you believe it? We don't have a charger with the iPhone. Big problem. <laughs> There's different things. What's my role as a follower of Christ in today's shifting culture? How can I stand firm in my faith and still be relevant to people that are so different from me? It's a massive question. How should I respond when others say that, that our view, uh, that the Christian view is unloving and unkind and doesn't show the heart of a loving father? And one of the things that I just heard in a conversation is how do I help my kids engage in a culture without losing them to that culture? These are all difficult questions that we need to grapple with, things that we need to consider, that we need to ask. What does it look like to stand firm and to love well? I think in the next five weeks, we'll be, we'll be journeying through a very special book, uh, the book Daniel. Um, I actually feel that this sermon series has been um, a good 16 years in the making. When, we, um, when Melise fell pregnant the first time, with Talita, um, for the first five, six months, everyone was saying it's a boy, even the doctors were saying it's a, it's a boy, and we called that boy Daniel. But every time we walked out, I said to Melise, I know the doctors are saying it's a boy, I'm telling you it's a girl. Now what do I know? First time dad, um, and and and. After seven, in the seventh month, the doctor came and said to us, listen, just want to say, um, it's not a boy, it's a girl. And I'm sitting there, yes. And Melissa's sitting there, oh. Because moms, um, they connect to, to the baby in a di very different way than dads do while they're still in the womb. I think dads just look at them, their wife getting big. It's like, what's happening? Um, don't tell Melissa I said that. <laughs> but the interesting thing, from the word go, we believe that that kid that was birthed in the womb would be a Daniel. And for 16 years, we've been seeing a Daniel, even though it's Talita, we've been seeing someone growing up and standing firm and loving well in a way that's taught us lessons as parents, where our daughter has been an example of something that God spoke over her life. And we confused it with gender. God, God had it clear with capacity and identity and understanding. And there's something about this where I want to take a few weeks just to, to run through the first six chapters of Daniel. I want to go through a few um, bits and pieces of the background information. 
Um, I think we need to understand that after the reign of David and Solomon, um, Israel was splintered into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The um, top ten northern tribes sort of isolated in what we call Israel. The, the bottom two tribes um, connected in what we call Judah. Uh, both parties uh, started off okay and then drifted off into the worship of idols and exploring different options of faith. Judah, um, including the small tribe of Benjamin, uh, was called the southern kingdom, and that's where Daniel was, um, where Daniel came from, where he lived. Now, it was at that time, about 620 BC, where the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom um, and took them over, and at that stage also took over the whole of the known world that we, that we know at that point. Assyria, before that, took over the northern kingdom, and Babylonia, uh, Babylon came and just disrupted everyone under the uh, leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, as a 16-year-old boy, was part of that whole, um, that whole uh, era of history. Now, what they did is they actually came in and they disrupted and destroyed everything in Jerusalem. They made sure that that wasn't a city that was livable. They took a lot of exiles. And part of that is they chose the best young men. And they did a few things physically to them. And they brought them into the Babylonian Empire. And they trained them to serve in the king's courts. So they actually took the best talent, the best promise. And they said, come to us. We will train you in what we want. It wasn't by choice. It was by (laughs) force. And it's in this space that we discover that Daniel... Um, was actually drawn as a 16-year-old boy, more or less, could be a few years prior or later, into this very different kind of world than than what he was growing up in. The interesting thing about Babylonia is they um, were a country, they were um, a culture that was helping on destroying every reference that related to a loving God. They actually came in with one of the most toxic expressions of culture that you would ever see and that you would ever encounter. Reading up about what was just, um, I think, normal practice in Babylonia, I sort of challenged myself thinking that we fall into the trap so often thinking that what we're experiencing and the challenges that we have is so different and so, more, so much more challenging to what those guys experienced. And can I say, <laughs> not true at all. I think we've got it pretty good. I think what we see as extreme challenges is way easier than what those guys experienced. Daniel just had been taken over with all of the young Jewish boys were castrated as part of just being taken into that. Just think about that. That was normal practice in the kingdom. That was law. That was the normal thing that happened to them. So there's so much of what we're encountering in our culture that's shifting and that's challenging and that's different. And can I just ask you to think about the fact that we don't necessarily have it so much more difficult than what other generations have had. We've got different problems. We've got different issues. But every generation faced its own significant challenges in that space. So Daniel walks into this into a world empire as a 16-year-old boy asking the question, how do I stand firm and how do I love well? How do I represent something of a view of the kingdom with him actually living in a a culture, even in Judah, that was very flaky, that uh, wasn't secure in the revelation of God? And it's with that that we pick up the story in Daniel 1 verse 1 to 7. 
I'm just going to read for you. If you have it in your Bibles, it says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them into the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered, ordered Ahasphenos, and I'm so glad that we've got different names at the moment. Imagine that. Ahasphenos? <laughs> Just weird. Um, his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong Healthy and good-looking young men, he said. That's people like Brian. Um, yeah. He said, make sure they are all well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature, literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So, if you think about what some of the other people that was taken captive experienced, these guys actually had it pretty good. They ate what the king ate, um, the same food. They actually lived in the palace. So this was a very um, elite group of young men that was given access actually to win them over so that they would serve in the king's courts. Verse 6 says, Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. Now, this is interesting. Verse 7, the chief of staff renamed, renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar, whatever. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. And then the story just continues. And we read through that as if, oh, that's cute. They go to another country, they get another name, and they keep continuing just as is. But the Bible is very pointed in some of the information that it gives. And sometimes you've just got to stop for a while and just ask the question, why were they, re why were they renamed? See, the big question is, what's in a name? What do we find in a name? I still remember day one at school. When I walked in, I had red hair, when I still had hair. I had a lot of freckles. I had two front teeth that stood almost horizontally when it came out. And my year one teacher looked at me day one, first entrance into school. She looked at me and she said, you're the naughty one. And guess what happened from that point on? I lived up to that label. I actually found great pleasure in disrupting and being annoying and being naughty, doing everything that I shouldn't have done. Why? Because someone in a position of power actually named me, labeled me. I think even before that, I couldn't see myself as uh, thinking that I was that naughty boy. But definitely as soon as school started, I found myself just to the off center of doing good at school. W.C. Field said, it's not only what people call you, it's what you answer to. That there's something about being named Something about carrying a label. See, the names you, uh, you allow to label you often title the scripts that you live by. That if we allow certain names to, to sort of identify us, we live up to what we are named. 
at first glance, these names seem very insignificant uh, to the biggest, biggest story. But, but we need to realize that for the Babylonians, these weren't just simply different names. These new names were there to obliterate every sense of identity that these young men had. They renamed them to cause confusion, to change the, the scope of identity that these young men experienced, and to bring them to a place that they were living up to what the Babylonians thought they would be. So let's quickly run through what the Hebrew meaning of these names were. Daniel meant God is my judge. Ananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. Mishal, who can compare to God? No one. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. All of these very strong statements about them and their relationship with God. That from the outset, the Hebrew culture understood the fact that you build a, a statement of connection into the names of young men so that every time you call their name, there was something about them and their relationship to God. Guess what the Babylonians did? Changed their names to Belshazzar, means lady, protect the king. Actually changed Daniel's gender by renaming him. Not God is my judge, young man, but changing him to every time someone called him Belshazzar, what were they saying? Hey girl, serve the king. Do something. Shadrach, instead of Yahweh has been gracious, the Babylonians built something into people's understanding that God is something and someone to be feared. That's where so much of our understanding of a judgmental God actually comes from. And it was built into the fiber of Shadrach's identity that every time someone called him, guess what he heard? God is someone to be feared. Be careful. Live up to it. Michelle, where it says, who can, compare, who can be compared to God? No one. It says, I am despised, I'm contemptible, and I am humiliated. That's his name. That's the meaning. And the last one, where Yahweh has helped was a term of sonship, sonship of an identity of being included, was changed into you're a servant of a man. You serve Nebo. That's the core thing. So from the outset, this whole issue of identity theft was built into the fiber of the Babylonian empire to disrupt, to bring confusion, to bring that sense of, of, of complete unsettledness in people's identity. And if they could do that, if they could shift people's understanding of who they were, they could make them into anything they wanted them to be. The shift was interesting. Then instead, if you could add the next one, Daniel was shifted from male to female, this all-powerful God um, to a God or a king that needed to be protected. Big difference. Where Shadrach shifted the focus from a gracious, loving God to a tyrannical God uh, that needed to be fear. And just think about the focus from God to self, that I am fearful of God. Suddenly ingrained into their culture was this understanding that I am fearful, that God is not a safe place to turn to. Um, uh, Meshach, from confidence to cowardice, from fo again, focusing from God to self, changing that. And uh, uh, Abednego, that you were a son of God, you are now a slave of man. See, in a culture that shifts people's sense of identity, they become slaves of the culture. 
And I think we still see so much of that at work in our culture today. That we look at culture with two different lenses. We look at our culture, we look at our society, and there's this incredible gift of opportunities, of things that we can do to serve. But there's also the understanding that there are opportunities and times and moments where we don't just serve the culture, we need to stand firm so that we could be a life-giving influence to this culture that we live in. And can I just say that if we allow the shift in identity to take place in our lives, there will be no godly influence in our culture. There will be no um, opportunities that leads to life. There'll be a bunch of good deeds, but if we allow in this season and in this time and in this culture, the shift of culture to become a, an identity shift in our hearts and our minds, we will lose focus. And remember, if they shift your identity, you become slaves to the culture. I see so much of this at work in the world we live in. The way society continues to redefine gender, gender relationships, marriage, things have become so flexible that people now have the right to determine who they are and who they want to be. There's this whole understanding that the constant messaging, just think about this, that you are what you wear, what you eat, what you live, what you drive, that meaning now has been connected to materialism. That what you have defines the essence of your identity. What does that say about people who don't have the stuff? How do we relate to people that don't have access to material wealth? Do we then see them as lesser just because they don't have it? There's this understanding of identity based on accomplishment that's dangerous. You are what you do, or you are what you know, this identity based on intellectualism. That if you have the best thought processes, you have to be good and great and well thought of. Or identity based on connections, that I am who I know. There's so many different distortions of identity. You are your body. Constantly framing your body so that you can find validation for your identity. And I think that's become such a core issue in our world today. All of these things are solid challenges that I think wants, um, at, at the core of these challenges, it wants to shift our perception of identity. And just from the outset, I think it's so important for us to realize that we can't stand firm um, and love well if we don't have a grip and a good grasping on the identity that God has given us. Just listen to what... Um, God says to Jeremiah, that actually lived in this time, in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, he says to him, I knew you before I formed you. Think about the implications of that. How many of us actually trace our experience and our history back to the moment we were born? And how many of us have allowed some of the bad experiences from birth to now to shape us without considering the fact there was a, that there was an eternal reference to who you are. God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in your, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you. There's something so incredible about the fact that God had thoughts about us way before the beginning of our time. That God thought about you that he had plans before you, and God's design was perfect. 
God's design was based in His image and in His likeness. And unless you're grounded in who God made you to, uh, to, you to be, the way you see yourself will easily morph into an illusion, into a cultural mirage. And so many people are actually trying to live up to that cultural shadow that's actually nothing. Because they don't believe the substance of who God created them to be. See, the beauty of God, if you read through the Scriptures, is that He changed people's names constantly as they encountered Him. And not just changed their names, their whole identity shifted from someone who fell into the trap of believing a lie to someone that walked into the space of becoming a truer revelation of who God made them to be. So we need to stop the label plunge, the identity plunge, by actually becoming people who are so grounded in our understanding of our identity and to live from that premise. Now again, it sounds easy, a bit of hype, all of those kind of things, but Daniel, as a 16-year-old boy, understood this, and he influenced the biggest world power of its day because of this one understanding. Not compromising, not sacrificing to the views of his time, but actually realizing that God is true, that God is faithful, and that God created me who I am. And from that premise, I'm not going to judge the world that I'm living in. I'm going to influence the world. I'm going to show humility. I'm going to bring hope. I'm going to share wisdom with everything that's available. Listen to what Ephesians 1 verse 11 to 12 says. Paul comes and he says, It is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Said long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, He had His eye on us. He had designs on us for glorious living, and that was part of the overall purpose He's working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you find out who you are. And part of this discovery of identity has been secured way before the foundation of the earth. See, once we realize this, we discover that purpose is our identity in action. Now, we could so easily think this is a great message for young people. But can I say, the older you get, the more ingrained your label becomes. The more settled you become in, in actually just allowing that label to define you. You don't challenge it anymore. You don't even ask questions about that anymore. You just sit and you become the warped um, revelation of that identity. And how do we know that we get there? We just become comfortable. We just settle. We don't ask critical questions anymore. We, the gap between transformational experiences between us and God, it just gets longer and longer and longer. And we become less of a representation of what God created us to be. You know what the beautiful thing is about Daniel and his friends? In Daniel 1 verse 15 to 20, these four guys actually says no to all the gifts, all the promises, everything that they were offered, and says, just give us veggies and water. Now, I can't think of anything worse. But after 21 days, or after the time allotted, they looked better. And the Bible actually says that they were 10 times better than anyone else in the kingdom. Think about that. Think about a godly community who so engages their world that the world says about us, not that we're judgmental, that we're critical, that we're isolated. 
think about what it looks like if the world looks, as, looks at us and says, you guys are 10 times better than anything we could find out there. That your posture, your way of life is actually bringing transformation to the world. Because you haven't fallen into the trap of warped labels and warped identities. You've allowed God to, to bring you to a point of standing firm and loving well. I think that's such an invitation. To enter into this season, understanding that being anchored is rooted, is secured in our understanding that our identity is found in Christ. Our activity flows out of that identity. And God is calling something different from us in this season. I'm praying, and that's something I prayed for this morning. God, I want to I be part of a community that people says you guys are 10 times better than anything else. Not because we're trying to. Actually, because we're trying not to. Actually, because we're just living out of who we are. So I want to pray for you just before we go into the last song of worship, uh, just declaring the goodness of God. Father, I want to thank you that there is a hope in our future. And that hope is in our eternal future, but also, Lord, in our future called tomorrow or next week, or next month, or 2021. I want to thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to everything that you have promised because hope actually invites us into the inner sanctuary of God. And this morning, Lord, I want to pray for people who have experienced this vertical blessing, this salvation of you saving us. Lord, I want to pray that you would help them to move further to experience the fullness of life that you've promised, that it's not just about personal salvation. It's being drawn into a life of being a kingdom representative. I want to pray for people, Lord, that are stuck in this horizontal line where they know something different has to happen in this world, but they don't know how. I want to pray, Lord, that you would bring them into this place of discovering you, the hope and the life that you've given, to use that as the platform for their engagement in the world, Lord. And that we would be known as people who haven't walked away from our identity in you. We haven't allowed labels to define us, Lord. We haven't fallen into the traps of, of, of identity um, uh, uh, this, this disruption, Lord. But we've allowed you to establish us, uh, to establish us on the basis of who you are. I pray, Lord, that we would discover our identity and our freedom in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you were encouraged by the message and would like to hear more sermons like this, make sure you hit subscribe. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To experience other messages, videos, and live services, head to oranahills.church and navigate to the resources tab. Thanks for listening.